Let's pray for Sam, shall we? And pray for ourselves. God, we thank you for Sam. Thank you for all that he brings to this community. We're so grateful for him. And I pray that he would feel, uh, again, that kind of sense of peace and that uh, we have the hearts and ears to hear, to engage, to be able to um, learn today, I pray. Pray that he could find his talk that he's prepared to. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen. Have you lost your... <laughs> Come through the back end of COVID this week, and I feel like the thing that's remained is, besides a slightly more manly voice, um, just brain fog. <laughs> I feel like I'm like, okay, where are we going? So you're in for a rough ride. Um, <laughs> As Dave said earlier, we're looking at this series together um, on the origin, on our origin stories, and kind of it gives us really an excuse to look back at these earliest texts in Genesis, um, these kind of earliest stories that probably for a lot of us are kind of really, really familiar, and yet sometimes it can be hard to know. Well, what do we do with them? How do I read them? What do they? What are they actually trying to say? And so we're kind of wanting to give them a bit of space to teach us again, and maybe something new, maybe something old. But kind of what are these texts saying? And we're working through uh, Genesis one to eleven, which is kind of the chapters in Genesis where where Genesis is at its most universal, shall we say? I mean, there's all, it's all about Israel in some ways, but also it's about everyone. It's about why is the world as it is today? Why is, um, what, like, how do we make sense of what's going on and, and make sense of the world around us? And just for, for a moment, in a, in a little while, we're going to have it read for us. And actually, Dave, there's five people who are going to do the reading. So I need you to chase them around and work out who's next and give them the mic. Um, and in a moment, we're going to have the story read to us. Um, but what I want you to do just, just first is to imagine that you are in exile. Maybe for some of you do feel like you're in exile, you're stuck in here. But, um, but like for the, for the people of Israel, where the Genesis stories come out of is this very, very traumatic time in their history where they were exiled from their homeland in Israel into Babylon. And they were taken by Babylon, and their, their whole temple structure was destroyed. Their way of doing faith and life together was destroyed. Their way of community was destroyed. And so you've got this kind of dispersed, dissipated community living in a foreign land, trying to work out who they are again and trying to make sense of themselves. And it's actually out of that time that the stories of the Old Testament come to us in their current forms. I'm not saying that they're not older in some ways, but that's where these texts kind of found their place for the people of Israel. It's where these stories came to be like cemented and, and told us as we have them now. And so that is... That is the environment. If I, again, if I were Anton, I'd get you to imagine that you're around a campfire and there's a, 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 a kind of a, a little old matriarch in the village who's gathering you round to tell you a story from the olden times and, and kind of, you know, picture the sand and all of that. I'm not Anton, so I can't do any of that. But, um, but uh, as we have this read to us in a little moment, I want you just to imagine that that's where you are. You are trying to make sense of a world that seems nonsensical, trying to make sense of a world that has thrown out everything that you pinned your meaning on 
Where is God? How do we worship? Where's the temple? What's our relationship with our land? We seem to be always away from home. What's going on there? Will we ever make it back? All of these questions. Where this, this kind of this horrific, horrific time that we've endured as a people, where has that come from? What's going on underneath it? If we were to peel back the curtain of reality, What's going on? And that's kind of some of what these questions, uh, questions these stories have asked. Um, in the first chapter of Genesis, we have the story of creation. Uh, and we looked at kind of how that was actually like told as a response to some other stories that were going around at the time. And God is, oh, God is totally other than we whoa, like there's a whole different story going on from even who God is like. Um, Last week, Dave talked to us about this garden um, in Genesis 2 and 3 and how the kind of this feeling of being away from home and not being where we should be um, there as well. And now we're going to hear the first story of the first family. So what happens next? Adam and Eve have left the garden. They've been sent out by by God for eating the fruit of the forbidden tree, um, and so they're they're making their kind of making their home, as it were, trying to work out what life looks like in a bit of a new environment, and then what happens next. Now, who has reading number one, James? And then if you've got number two, just stick your hand up halfway through, and then uh, Dave will run around to you. Um, brilliant. Great. So this is from Genesis four. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. 
If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Zillah had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 27 times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. All right. Thank you, guys. Um, thanks, Lydia, with all those names. Mahujael, Mahujael. Um I did keep going past the end of the cane bit, and there's a reason for that, and we'll get to that in a little, um, a little while. But I kind of, let's just go through that story again together. There's kind of like a central thing that I want to do, and I've got no idea whether saying this is going to take me five minutes or 75 minutes. Um, by experience... <laughs> probably the latter, but um, we'll see. And then we're going to take communion together in a little bit as well. So I'll try and be, uh, I'll try and be quite quick. Um, but just kind of, I want to talk, just, let's just walk through that story. So Adam and Eve have two kids, um, Cain and Abel, um, and, and they grow up together. And <laughs> that's evident from the story, isn't it? Um, it's interesting how quickly the story just rattles through the early details, isn't it? Like, it just kind of really paces it. Like, Cain, now he's a farmer all of a sudden. He's, like, completely skipped his teenage years. He's just, a, you know, straight in there as a farmer. Um, and Abel keeps flocks. Um, and then there's this bit where it all starts to go wrong. There's no indication as to why they knew to do this. Why, why these kind of first kids of the first parents thought, I should probably sacrifice something to God. God might want that. Um, no indication of God asking it. But they, they come and they bring these sacrifices to God. And, and Cain brings some fruit from, from the plants that he's farmed. Um, and Abel brings the first, first portions of his flocks. I can't remember exactly how it puts it. Um, and then it says, and I, I just wanted to think about this for a second. On Abel's offering, God, God looked. God, God kind of acknowledged. God smiled upon. But on Cain's offering, the Lord did not. 
In other words, what's happened here are kind of a couple of different things. There's been an action that Abel has taken and an action that Cain has taken. And then some kind of a perceived response of God. I wonder, what did that look like? I don't know if that occurs to you when you read the text. I just kind of find it interesting to be like, what does it mean to them that God looked with one offering positively and the other he didn't accept? Like, what were the metrics involved? Was it like that the next week, um, Abel's sheep all had, you know, 17 children each and then his flock suddenly exploded versus Cain had a rough year and kind of interpreted it like, oh, God's not looking with favor on my... Does that make sense? There's no indication of the text. There's also, and I, I think this is important, no outright indication as to exactly why one offering was accepted and the other rejected. God hadn't told Cain it's got to be the first, you know, because people look at this text and they, they want a reason why, because we want to solve it, don't we? Like, we want, we want there to be a goodie and a baddie. We want there to be a clear right and wrong. We want God to be someone that we can come to, and if we do things right, this is what comes out the other side. And so people have looked at this story, and, and, and I, I think there is a reason to come to it, but I want us to avoid doing it, where, where people have said, like, oh, it was because Cain's offering was just worse, like maybe he didn't offer it with enough faith. Maybe he didn't offer it with enough charisma. Maybe uh, maybe he could have he could have come two weeks earlier with the first stuff that he got, and he's kind of giving God off the back end of his you know what fell off the back of the wheelbarrow as it were. And um, you know here you go God, and it's kind of a bit less than. But there's really this strikes me as interesting. There's no clear statement in the text about firstly. What made one offering better than the other, or more acceptable to God, or why God accepted it versus the other? And no clear answer as to then how Cain and Abel knew that one offering had been accepted by God and that the other hadn't. Now, the reason that I'm laboring that point a bit is that this is basically the entire way that we go through life. Is we're looking at each other and Sorry, the brain fog is going to take over a lot today, but we'll get there together, okay? Get there together. Um, um, <laughs> we go through life, and we're kind of looking at each other and trying to work out, like, what's the formula for a good existence? And, and then down the road, there seems to be someone who's doing everything wrong but still succeeding. And over there is someone who's doing everything right, but their life is falling apart. And over there is someone who just kind of doesn't really, you know, just kind of whatever. But... But, like, what's actually going on here? How do we resolve it? How do I be one of the ones who's kind of ahead, who's winning, who's, who's getting the stuff back, who's pleasing God? Does that make sense? Impressive. It didn't make sense to me, as I was saying, but that's cool. Um, good for you. You're clever. Um, so there's kind of this ambiguity built into the text that I think is really important because we kind of we live in that ambiguity of how do we know what's God's blessing, what's not God's blessing, what's God's curse, what's come from him, what's not come from God. Does that make sense? Um, there's this other cool thing. It's just a few points. Um, which is in this passage, sin is mentioned in the Bible for the first time. 
and for a lot of us, becomes something of a key word. <laughs> like the Bible is all about sin, isn't it? Um, and it's not come up till now. It didn't come up as a word in Genesis 3, which is really interesting, isn't it? No Genesis 3, where they eat the, the forbidden fruit, that's nearly always called the first sin. But the word isn't there. Instead, sin comes up for the first time in this story, where sin isn't about something that's done to God, but something that's done to someone else. Isn't that cool? There's this really tender moment in the story where God comes to Cain and he says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. In other words, I think what he's saying is, you haven't sinned yet. <laughs> Does that kind of make sense? Like, it's not that you've just, you've done naughty things and so your offering wasn't accepted. That you kind of, you're living in this ambiguity of something has gone wrong and you're not quite sure what it is. Maybe your crops are failing, maybe whatever it is, but you're jealous of Abel. He seems to be doing well. How are you going to respond to it? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's an incredibly perceptive little phrase. But sin that God is talking about is about what Cain is about to do to Abel. And then Cain, as we know, um, <laughs> takes God's advice very, very seriously and immediately calls his brother Abel out into a field and murders him. Which is good. It's a good sign. It's listening to God. Um, and, and it's this awful tragedy of like, this is literally the first two humans that are born. Like the first two created humans. And they grow up and one murders the other one. Like it's a complete tragedy, isn't it? But, um, but, but I think that's the genius of this story. Remember the, the kind of exercise I just got you to do, where you're thinking, okay, we're a people in exile, and we're kind of you know, 500 years before the birth of Christ and, and everything that we know has gone to pot and the world just seems dominated by empire and by violence and by the, the might is right and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, where does that come from? Where does that story come from? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about, when we were talking about Genesis 1, um, some of the hypothesis of the kind of other surrounding nations was that the violence that we experience in the world comes from God. Like, God is fundamentally violent. There's this war in the heavens, and, the, and uh, kind of the powerful gods kill the less powerful gods, and they fight it out, and blah, blah, blah. And out of that kind of mess and violence falls the world, which makes kind of sense of where all our violence comes from. Basically, our violence is, comes from, is the great-great-grandchild of God's violence. And, and one of the really cool things about this story, I think, is that it says that that's actually not true. God is, God is completely non-violent in this story. I'm skipping around. Sorry, brain fog. I'm going to keep using that as an excuse all the way through. It won't get boring for you at all. Um, Okay, let's follow the story down a bit and then we'll circle back because that, that's kind of the, the big thing here. The story follows Cain as he is sent out by God. It's not quite clear where he 
was to be sent out from. Like in the, in the, do you remember in the last chapter, they got sent out of the Garden of Eden. There's this kind of first exile, which is cool, isn't it? Because the people in exile, they're learning about exile. Where does that exile come from? Right at the beginning. Um, and then in this chapter, Cain, um, God says you're going to be a restless wanderer on the world, like, and on, the, on the earth. Um, you're going to have to go. Like, you have to leave because um, you killed your brother. And, and then it follows down the line of Cain. He gets a wife. We're not told where from. But the implication is that they're not, they're not alone in the world at this point, right? So, you know, it's kind of simultaneously, this is the story of the first humans. And there's clearly other people around, so don't worry about it. Um, and people, again, it's really funny watching Bible commentators hop around this stuff. Like, oh, well, Cain married his sister. But it was a special permission given by God for a one time only. So don't even get any, you know, like as if, anyway, people jump through hoops. Don't worry about jumping through hoops. Just accept the story. Cain finds a wife, marries, and starts to have his kids. But then it follows the family line of Cain down. Now, family trees are often the point in the Bible where we all lose interest and our brains go off on holiday. Um, but they're really, actually, all of the family trees in the Bible, I think, are probably quite interesting. <laughs> Do you like how I put the word probably? Because I haven't actually found them all interesting yet. But, um, but they're all there to tell us something. Um, and actually, I think this, this one is particularly fascinating. So Cain um, has a kid, has a kid, has a kid, and it walks down six generations from Cain. So seven generations from Adam. Um, down to this guy who we meet, who seems like quite a character, called Lamech, or Lamech. Lamech? Lamech? Call him Lamech. He's kind of lame. Um, and um, and he, he says this to his kids. So we've got the kind of the violence of Cain, and then he's cast out. And then where does that go? Where does that lead? Seven generations down, here's what we have. Lam Lamech, Lamech, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. It's good, nice, nice bit of uh, toxic masculinity creeping in here right at the beginning. Um, come on, women, listen up or else, basically what he's saying. Um, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. <laughs> a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, do you remember God put the mark on Cain, said if someone harms you, they'll, they'll get harmed seven times or something. So again, hard to know what that means. But if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech will be avenged 77-fold. And then it goes and tells the story of how this is at the point where culture is beginning and society is beginning and cities are beginning and all this stuff is kind of happening. In other words, <laughs> what happens as an, seems to happen as an isolated incident in the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain is jealous of Abel, not quite sure what, but we're all jealous of everyone all the time, so this is kind of our story too, and Cain kills Abel. Cain's answer for it must get rid of Abel. Where does that lead? What happens? Does violence solve problems or does it lead to more violence? I wonder. Let's have a look. Okay, seven generations down. What's happened now? Oh, look. The whole thing has completely multiplied beyond recognition. 
We've gone from having a non-violent society 20 verses earlier <laughs> to having everything waging a war on everything else, to having everything is about vengeance. Everything is about, re everything is about revenge and getting even. And, and in fact, more than getting even, Cain, like God said to Cain, if someone kills you, they'll be killed, which I, I mean, still doesn't feel like a massive kind of <laughs> like, oh, phew, thank goodness. Um, not, not loads of protection. Do you know what I mean? Are you joining in with my brain fog? I'm <laughs> You're going to go away and be like, what was this morning about? <laughs> Cain, something, anyway. Um, but but, <laughs> but by, by a few generations later, what you have is a thing where violence is totally just baked in to the system, to the point, it, to the point where it seems completely normal for Lamech to be like, this is how we do life. It's just violence. If someone comes near me, near me, maybe I get a bit offended. I kill him. Someone harms me, kill him 77 times over or whatever. Um, and it's just totally, totally out of control. There was a guy about 50 years ago, and I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to try and circle back there now because I think this is, I think this is important here, um, called René Girard. And René Girard was like a philosopher um, and a bit of a kind of dabbling theologian. But actually, like what he said as a philosopher and kind of a, uh, oh, what's the one where you look at people? And sociologist, anthropologist. Um, and, and kind of looking at societies and how they work. And he thought a lot about this stuff. Um, and, and something that he said has had like massive implications for the way that a lot of people now understand theology and understand how we, how we relate to each other and do God. And one of the things that he said that I think this passage is basically in its genius pointing at way ahead of time, like thousands of years before Girard, because it's so clever, um, is this thing that Girard ca calls the scapegoat mechanism. Now, probably some of you have heard of that. Um, Girard talked about this thing called, he called it mimetic theory, which is this basic idea that humans go through life copying each other. Um, and, and so we kind of copy each other's desires. So let's say you want a nice car. All of a sudden, and you're like, you know, you're searching on Google for nice cars or whatever. I know you guys. Um, and, uh, and then I see you searching on Google for nice cars. And I'm like, hey, I could do with a nice car. You know, like, maybe I want a nice car. You get your car, and I'm like, I want your car. And do you know what I mean? Like you, 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 someone, what someone else seems to value becomes the measure of what you seem to value. And, and, and he's like, basically, societies are built on that. But the problem is, is that there's, there's this kind of thing that we bump into where resources are limited. And so you get like little villages clustering, you know, little ancient villages where people would kind of all desire the same thing, but there wouldn't be enough of it to go round. And so you've got a real problem where the tensions in the village get high. And then Girard, what Girard said was there's a mechanism for dealing with that that societies use and have always used, which is that you find someone else to direct your anger against. So, you know, classically, oh, I don't know. Um, Nope, brain fog, backtrack. 
Yeah, you find, so you find someone else to direct your anger against. And it's got to be someone who's close enough to you who could feasibly be just about held responsible for whatever kind of problem you feel like you have, but someone who's different enough to you that you can isolate them and take it out on them. Does that make sense? Classic examples from, you know, the, probably the, the biggest, most horrific example from the 20th century um, is what happened in Nazi Germany. And, and like, okay, so we're now, we're going we're gonna to find a group that we can put all of our ills on and tell the story that hypothetically, if we were to get rid of that person, if we were to get rid of that group, all our economic issues would go away. All our social issues would go away. We'd be living in basic paradise. It would be amazing. And, and, and so you get the group to kind of direct their anger towards, towards one person. And, and what Girard says is that a lot of the time in history, in human history, this just goes completely unchecked. And we don't even realize that we're doing it because we genuinely believe it, right? So it's like, it's this thing that we kind of, you, you can't unmask it because we're all doing it all the time. Where, where we, the way that we find togetherness together is by having an other that we oppose. And um, that's what gives a society strength more than anything. That's, it's, it's this having an other, this having an enemy. And there doesn't even have to be a watertight reason why. This is why I kind of labored the stuff earlier with Cain and Abel. What's the reason that Cain thinks it's a good idea to murder Abel? There's no... It's not like if he actually thought it through. Do you know, does that, it, killing Abel wouldn't actually lead him to be approved by God as if God could only approve one sacrifice at once. And the reason that he didn't get the blessing was that Abel got it first. Does that make sense? Um, but but it's kind of enough there that Cain can convince himself Abel's the problem. It's not me. There's no mess in me. The problem is Abel. I need to get rid of Abel. And then as the story goes on and you get this kind of cycle of violence and the whole of society gets built on this violence, um, I think what, what, what Gerard would say of, of this story is like this is a really early genius kind of glimpse into this thing that all of us do all the time, which is scapegoating, which is looking at someone else and thinking, oh, that person is the problem. And if I get rid of them, I get rid of the problem. And this cycle of violence um, carries on. Now, it's easy to listen to this story and think, well, that's quite extreme, isn't it? Like, probably none of us go around chopping up the people that we don't like. If you do, talk to Dave. Um, but, um, but, and so, like, well, how does that relate to us? The reality is we, we all kind of buy into this stuff one way or another. Um, like, I mean, the example I, I keep using over the last few weeks, just because... I know we're like a lot of us are kind of nice left, gentle left wingers, you know, not like not too far, but um, kind of gentle lefties. Um, um, and then, then it's really easy in, uh, to kind of get into our own echo chamber and just think, oh, the problem with all our society is the people on the other side of the political divide. If you voted a Tory, you're the baddie. Does that make sense? And, and so, you know, even if you're not being violent, we do this all the time. 
one of the things I love about the story of the Bible is, firstly, it kind of uses one of his earliest moments to kind of show this thing that's going on, to say, look at what you're doing to each other. The story of Cain and Abel isn't just the story of Cain and Abel. It's the story of all of us. It's the story of this kind of cycle of violence that grows, this cycle of hatred um, that grows. And it points to it and shows it up. Um, one of the guys who's like a big uh, René Girard fan, and I'm a big him fan, is a, a, a theologian called James Allison. And I quoted him a few weeks ago when we were looking at the cross. Um, and um, I can't remember why I brought that up. <laughs> Anyway, um, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm back. He, um, <laughs> he says that uh, what the story of the Bible does is imperfectly highlight this kind of scapegoat mechanism to the point where the ultimate revelation of this scapegoat thing that we're doing to each other comes in the person of Jesus and actually in the death of Jesus. Like what the death of Jesus is, is this ultimate example of, of where, we, where we find someone who we think is the problem and if we get rid of them, we, that will solve the problem. And so the state want to get rid of Jesus and the people want to get rid of Jesus. Uh, not really, but they kind of convinced. Um, they kind of go with it. Like, yeah, yeah. And um, and the religious authorities want to get rid of Jesus. And there's this feeling of like, ah, if we kill that one, that will solve all our problems. But the irony is that it's like you kill Jesus. All you've really done is kill the innocent. It's kill the innocent one. And is actually, in this case, bizarrely, murder God. Um, just a few more things on Jesus, because Jesus is cool. One of the things that I think is this, I was like, where do I, how do you, where do you go with this? Do you know what I mean? Like, please don't murder people. <laughs> um, or how do we break the cycle of hate? Um, <laughs> this is such a random connection of thoughts. Um, <laughs> I promise I haven't been taking anything. <laughs> Maybe I should, did you say? <laughs> That's what my wife said. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> one of the things I love about Jesus is and we all know this this is not a secret is that Jesus totally refuses to at any point play this game of othering and play this game of blaming there's, there's, there's never anyone around Jesus that he's like you are the problem even when they are like even when it's Zacchaeus, or even when it's a Roman centurion, or even when it's Pontius Pilate, and, and he represents like the evil empire that's ruling over and is genuinely violent and will actually kill him quite soon. Jesus, I mean, he speaks truth. Like he's not, he, he doesn't just say, oh yeah, what you're doing is lovely. Like there's a challenge, but he's never against um, anyone. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Avril did a talk and it was just awesome. And she was talking about the kind of the incarnational justice um, of Jesus and, and how when Jesus interacts with an individual, he always centers them. He always hears them. He might be talking to a Samaritan. He might be talking to a Roman. He might be talking to a rich person. He might be talking to a peasant. He might be talking to a child. He might be talking to an old person. Um, and, 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 and he just, he always, always sees them. 
And when people want him to kind of pick sides and say, ah, you know, join our side and join the revolution or whatever. I'm just assuming that has a conversation that happened. Um, he, He never did. To the point that even though the Roman Empire was like really, really evil and really, really harmful, Jesus never actually was like, come on, let's overthrow the Roman Empire. He never othered them even. Even though they were like, who actually would have solved a lot of problems um, to get rid of them. Does that make sense? Um, And even when he has made the ultimate scapegoat and is the victim of people's hatred and the victim um, of people's lies and the the one that they all gang up on, um, he says that amazing phrase, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. There's this bit, kind of trying to work out what to do with this talk. (laughs) As you can tell, I'm still working it out. Um, Oh, good. Thanks, Cara. Um, And (laughs) there's this phrase that Cain says that I just think we should probably hang, go away with, which is um, when God says to him, where is your brother? And Cain replies famously, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I was like, ah, I mean, what does it look like to be our brother's keeper? What does it look like to, to, to buy out of the mechanisms of hatred so much that we are the ones who people know, oh, they, they will never, <laughs> they would never throw me under the bus. They would never have a negative word to say about me. Because I'm not explaining this well. How do we be our brother's keeper? In a world that the violence, the cycle of violence, and we know this is just carrying on, how do we not even demonize Putin? There's, um, (laughs) I've quoted from this so many times. I'm going to kind of read read a bit, um, and then we're going to go to communion together. Um. And during the Vietnam War, Henri Nouwen was one of the kind of voices that was speaking against it. And I've, I've read from this passage, I think, at length uh, a few times here, but it's just so good. Um, he gave a speech at a big anti-war rally. Um, and, and I won't do any more intro. I'll read it. Because he didn't have brain fog. And that will become very clear. He said this. We are trying to do a very difficult thing. We are trying to say no to war, no to the indiscriminate killing of men, women, and children, no to the horrendous destruction of villages, cities, and fertile lands. In short, no to all the evil powers that sow death instead of life. Why is this such a difficult task? Because we want to say no in such a way that the possibility of peace becomes visible in our words, hands, and eyes. And when our words are only angry curses, our hands only clenched fists, and our eyes filled with hostile gazes, then we are trying to end a war with a war. And we add narrow-mindedness to narrow-mindedness, hostility to hostility, Fear to fear, and violence to violence. If we want to respond to the incredible violence in our world with a credible nonviolence, 
we have to be willing to realize that nonviolence is not a technique to conquer peace, but a deep personal attitude which makes it possible to receive peace as a gift. Therefore, we are called today to confess that the evil we are protesting against is alive in our own selves. To repent with contrite hearts for the sins of the world. To witness to the possibility and desirability of peace in the midst of a war-ridden society. To show a deep compassion not only for our friends, but also for those we have called on and to work with hope for the liberation. I love this line, I've quoted it so many times here, but I love it. To work with hope for the liberation that frees both the oppressor and the oppressed from the tyrannical automation of violence. Let us therefore go forth in the peace which the world cannot give, a peace we want to share with each other and with everyone we meet on our way. I love that speaking to a bunch of people who are passionate about them being right, and they are right, want to say no to war. But even in the way that we say no to violence, even in the way that we say no to corruption in government, even the way that we say no to those nut jobs on Facebook can be so full of hate that, <laughs> that we're just perpetuating a cycle anyway. And there's a call to break the cycle. How do you break the cycle of Cain and Abel? How do you break the cycle that just gets out of control on its own? I remember like after 9-11, the awful, awful, awful tragedy. Complete act of evil, 3,000 people died. And, um, and then the war that followed, that was like, okay, we must take, we must take, we can't just not act, can you? You can't just not do anything. And the war that followed, I remember, it, when, I, when I last talked about this was years ago, um, before the war had ended, and the civilian death toll was already well over 300,000 people from that war. And it's like we can convince ourselves that we are right and be more of a son, more of a child of evil than the thing that we're fighting against. How do we break the cycle? How do we refuse to be those who speak in hate? There we go. That last two minutes was really all you needed, isn't it? Um, in a moment, we're going to have communion. Um, and I, I, like, this felt like just such a perfect place to land because this is a table that is designed completely around openness. There is literally no one who is not welcome to come and sit and eat at this table. This table welcomes the worst murderer, the biggest sinner, the most annoying Facebook commenter all around the same table and amazingly it welcomes me too and you too and even as we take this meal together we are breaking the cycle of Cain and Abel because we are refusing to other and we're saying this brokenness we are all part of this death we were all part of we've all done this violence and yet we all can receive life and we all can receive grace and we can all receive healing. Um, maybe if, could you guys just start playing while we hand it out? Is that okay? And then maybe I won't hand it out, but maybe if you do that. Um, so let's just remember this moment together.
I'm not going to find the passage. But that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and broke it and gave it to his friends. Eat this in remembrance of me. And taking the cup, I think he blessed it. And said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And in um, the book of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus' death and Jesus' blood. And it says, and this blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Never quite knew what to do with that phrase. What does that mean? Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As if Abel's blood was being really mean. <laughs> but I think it's talking about this breaking the cycle thing. This is the blood that ends our violence. This is the violent moment in history that shows up all of it for what it is and invites us around a table to do something other. So let's take this in remembrance of him.